Last time on The Spectator, independent researcher Dennis Enrietta wound us through his threads, as he likes to call them, which he's developed over 40 years. Dennis offers some very compelling evidence that Molly's death may have been covered up in an effort to broker a ceasefire between the Kennedys, Jimmy Hoffa, and Sam Giancana for the common cause of placing a Kennedy in the White House in 1960. The theory is explosive, but the pieces are all there. We've taken you to pivotal moments for the case, starting in 1948 to 1957 through 1978. That brings us up to today and to our final episode, where we find Molly Zelko's story unfinished, but far from over. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. You just mentioned that perhaps I'm the number one source. I will always be the number two source. That's because the number one source will be John Whiteside. We've discussed John Whiteside throughout the series and his importance in keeping Molly's case alive, working with Lonnie Kane, who you just heard, at the Joliet Herald News after Lynn brought the little-known case to their attention in 1978. You may have surmised this, but the reason we haven't heard from John himself is that he passed away, losing a valiant battle with cancer in 2005 years before his time. Hours after he died, John's beloved Joliet Herald News carried a front-page editorial titled Lifelong Dream Ends in Final Column. A journalist until the end, John wrote this column before his death to address his loyal readers one final time. He wrote, If you're reading this, I've already looked upon the face of God, and I pray that he has nodded his head in a positive way. As my storytelling days have ended, now, perhaps, I have the final chapter of what happened to Molly Zelko. Maybe God will allow me to interview her if she made it upstairs, too. Um, when John was going through his battle with cancer, he died, a melanoma took him in 2005. It, it took a year for that process, and he wrote about it. Um, and I think that uh, that probably showed uh, real evidence of his connection to the community because uh, boxes full of cards uh, were sent to John had received so much support and sympathy uh, from the community, encouraging him and thanking him for his role in the community. Um, just a, a great guy. Uh, he had a huge impact on this community uh, because his column was their voice and their connection. Following John's death, Lonnie championed Molly's cause, often taking on John's tradition of writing about her on the anniversary of her disappearance. The greatest work about Molly Zelko is still coming, however. Lonnie is in the process of writing a book on the disappearance, which will inevitably become the book about Molly. If the relatively small amount of research he has shared with us is any indication, this will be the authority on the mystery and an exhaustive culmination of the careers of two incredible journalists. I got into it because John pulled me into it, and now it's become my crusade. Um, you know, even, even John, uh, who, as I said, passed in 2005, you know, in his final days would talk about, well, now I'll find out what happened to Molly. Um, 
Uh, it's very sad that he didn't get to see um, a conclusion to this story. This, we always said that this would make a great movie, but it didn't have an ending yet. Um, and we also talked about writing the book, which I, I have to do now um, for John and for Molly and now my quest uh, and for the community. Um, somebody has to take all the material that we gathered in 78 and all the material that's piled up since then, because we both have written about it since then. Um, uh, at the newspaper where I worked in Ottawa, I wrote about it and had feedback uh, and tips and, and, and pointing us in directions to look. It's like a story that you can never stop researching. Um, so now, so that's how I got involved, and, that's, and, and it was a Whiteside passion, um, and it's his passion that's helping me now, uh, and uh, so I need to put this all together for him, for Molly, and the community. As a fellow journalist, Lynn Lichtenauer, too, had a close and nearly lifelong friendship with Johnny, as she called Whiteside, that lasted for decades after fate placed their apartments next to each other in the 1970s. Despite their bond as the torchbearers of the dark story of Molly, Lynn recounts years of lighter moments as they raised their families together throughout the years, including this lesson John taught her son about the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Johnny is babysitting with Shelly, their daughter, who was just a little less than a year older than Eric, my son. And Eric bit Shelly. When I came home, Johnny said, I bit your son. Oh, okay. Well, he bit Shelly, and, and, and so I bit him. Okay. Eric never bit anybody again. <laughs> I mean, he, he, was, he was so, he was fun, and he was a good guy, and he could cajole me for hours with stories. Off the record, Lynn. Off the record, Lynn. Sitting around his kitchen table, you know. He always had the stories. John always said, everyone has a story to tell if you just listen. And he was a great listener, and he, want, you know, he, he, he wanted the excitement of it. It just triggered his adrenaline, you know. Whether he solved it or not, mm. just the, the idea of the story sure. and everything that it could be. But the Molly story never left Johnny. Molly Zelko never left Johnny's imagination or his wanting to know really what happened. In Joliet, there's a famous mystery handed down through time and history. In large part because of Lynn, Lonnie, and John, Molly Zelko is larger than life in Joliet. She remains a strong piece of lore and a household name in the city. Though less so today, theories about her disappearance are a favorite topic among many old enough to remember the event. Organized searches conducted by law enforcement went on until the 1990s. Since the dawn of the internet and social media, various websites and social media pages have picked up her banner. The mystery even inspired a local folk artist, and as we learned, a career journalist named Ted Slowick, to write a song in her honor, which you're hearing now. Missing person, where did she go? 
After the initial shock of the disappearance, the publicity around the sensational event faded quickly as America blasted into the 1960s. While many newspapers commemorated the first anniversary of Molly's disappearance in 1958, the cries for justice became quieter and quieter, and the headlines fewer and fewer as the years passed. Molly's beloved mentor, Bill McCabe, never fully recovering from his 1948 assault, much less her disappearance, couldn't hold on any longer, and died on August 13, 1958, less than a year after Molly vanished. Molly Zelko's loss was one the spectator itself couldn't recover from either. It closed its doors in 1965, bought by its competitor, the Joliet Herald News, and shelved. Molly was declared legally dead the same year. The spectator's offices were demolished years later. Directly across the street from the very spot where the spectator was printed to rail against gambling now stands, of all things, a massive casino. Members of Molly's family remain in the Joliet area today, like her nephew and niece, cousins Jim and Arlene, who we heard from in episode 5. They still cherish her memory and honor her legacy, and hold out hope that the mystery will, one day, be solved. Yeah, when there was speculation about, in the newspaper, maybe when those articles were coming out, like, you know, oh, do you think she snuck off somewhere and is living in an island in the Caribbean or something? Well, that's always going to come out. Yeah, and the consensus always was she would have come back when her dad died. She would not have just disappeared and not told anybody she was just hiding out. Yeah, I think everybody in the family was pretty well accepted that she's gone, she's probably been dead since the day she was taken. Since the day she disappeared. And, you know, we'll probably never know. consider who took her, they don't mess around, you know. They were after her, they wanted her stopped, they stopped her. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. Just hope she didn't suffer. Most of the tributes to Molly from her family are the opposite of her signature flashiness, subtle and understated. By no means, however, is she forgotten. In Jim's family, Molly's name quite actually lives on. I actually have a daughter named Molly, so that's a tribute to our aunt. I could tell you a story of, uh, speaking of our children, you know, my wife and I adopted two children. Lauren is from Korea and Molly is from China. And we traveled to China. We are there 18 days to bring Molly home. And the day after we got home, I worked at the Will County Health Department. The health department and the hospital and Herald News were sponsoring some kind of a health event, a walk or you know something like that. And the editor of the Herald News at the time was uh, Mark Gibson. And uh, John Whiteside was still alive at that time. And, and this was after he had written all the articles, but every time her anniversary came up, he would write something. So my wife Rita and myself and Molly, I don't know if Lauren, I don't think Lauren came with us. I don't choose them. But anyhow, the three of us went to the event, and there's Mark Skipson there. So I said, I got talking to Mark, and oh, you know, we had just gotten back from China, little girl. And talking to Marks, and I said, Marks, when you go to work tomorrow, will you see John Whiteside? Yeah, yeah, I'll see John. And I said, well, you tell John Whiteside that you met Molly Zalko oh. today. <laughs> that was my daughter. We had named her Molly. Start a big story. And I said, there you go. That's that's Molly Zalko. You tell John you met her <laughs> at Bicentennial Park. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm sure he did. They're both gone now, but I would love to have been there. When... How many told him that? Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another part of Molly's legacy, like her shoes, was a massive diamond ring she owned. It became a tantalizing part of the mystery that newspapers openly speculated about, albeit offensively, after she disappeared. How could she afford it? Was it given to her by McCabe or another suitor? Was it a motive for her disappearance? Did she cash it in and make herself disappear? Some of these reports also claim the ring had mysteriously vanished along with Molly, but the truth was a bit less spectacular when the diamond was located among her possessions and ultimately returned to the family. While the final disposal of the ring put the family in a bit of a conundrum which lasted years, Jim devised a solution. Yeah, she had this gorgeous diamond. It was a 17-carat emerald-cut yellow diamond. And it had, in the setting, it had two small one-carat emerald-cut diamonds. It was Molly's ring, and she wore it. She would wear it when she came over at Christmas. Yeah, the big thing, oh, let's see the ring. And as her estate settled after seven years, the estate was selling off whatever assets were in her estate, and the ring was one of them. And there was a um, appraisal. They appraised it at $5,000. That would have been seven years after she disappeared. And I can remember my dad saying, oh, that ring is worth a lot more money than that. <laughs> and somebody is going to try to get that ring, and they probably already have a buyer, I'm going to buy it. So my dad bought it. So he had the diamond. And you know, it, was a, it was big. I mean, it was almost an inch in length. It was emerald cut. And it's not something that our family, any of the Zelkos other than Molly, would be ever comfortable wearing. So my dad just didn't want it to go and somebody to make money on it, he bought it. So, And he bought it with the idea that he wasn't just going to keep it. He wasn't going to wear it. My mom was never comfortable. He would take it out maybe at Christmas. He had a safety deposit box. He'd bring it out. My mom would wear it in the house and then show everybody and then they would <laughs> take it back to the, <laughs> the safety deposit box. So he tried to sell it a number of times. Could never find a buyer. So when my mom passed, I get this ring and it's like, what am I going to do with this? I can't leave this to my daughters. You know, I can't burden them with, what do you do with this? It's in the box, safety deposit box. So I, I was interviewed by John Whiteside well before he passed, and he asked me about the ring. And I said, when I get the ring, I'm going to make two diamond rings for my two daughters out of the small side diamonds. So I did. I made, I've got... Uh, Lauren's got one and Molly's got one. Wear them all the time. And I was very fortunate in that I met a guy through the Will County Coin Club who put me in touch with a couple of people and one of them made a offer that I accepted. So I sold the big stone, made diamond rings for my two daughters. So I think my mom and dad would have been happy. Like you'd expect from any grieving family, the Zelkos simply want closure, perhaps even more than they expect accountability with the passage of six decades. They seem to be resigned to the fact that no one will ever be brought to justice, but they hold out hope that Molly can be found and brought home, with the simple wish of being able to visit her to pay their respects, as they would any other deceased family member. I would like to know where her body is so that she can have a place to be yeah. with 
I would like yeah. her to be with family, yeah. with her body. Yeah, and, and I'm uncomfortable I mean, with that part too. That yeah. wherever she is, she's alone. You know, nobody yeah. can go and say, and "Let's go say knows. a prayer. Let's go put a flower." Yeah, it would be nice to have that. I, I guess like to have her. Yeah, here. have her buried in a plot somewhere near where the family. Know where she is, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that would be yeah. what I would like to see. Yeah. That would be the ultimate closure. Yeah, I think. I think so too. All Find of us out. would like to yeah. someday see and, and what happened to her. Won't. Yeah. Perhaps as something of a candle in the window for Molly, and hope her remains will one day be located. To this day, Molly's family has chosen not to erect a grave marker in her honor. I also like to think that's a small display of Molly's signature defiance. For the family that loved her, those that knew her, and the others who came to know her in the investigation into her incredible life, 60 years is still too soon to put Molly's Elko to rest. you cared about me Where are you? Well, Molly Zelko um, now is a it almost like be a character in a novel you know, you would never have known that Molly was afraid of anything I can't believe it's great Joliet lore. It, it, she stepped into Joliet lore the night she left that office. The secret's been going for 60 years. Don't know how without evidence of a skeleton. I don't know how you can prove anything. Was it all in vain? I personally, I think at some point in time, just need to know. For a long time, part of me, and I'm not sure I've totally given up on wondering whether Molly disappeared on her own. Um, but, you know, the chances are that the mob took care of her uh, is probably a pretty solid theory. Uh, can you find somebody to put in jail for it today? Probably not. Uh, it's been too long. Um, is there someone around today that knows? Don't know. Um, John and I always hope for some deathbed confession, but there haven't been any of those that I'm aware of. So the question of is there someone out there that might actually know, I'd say maybe. Definitely say I hope so. Uh, but will we ever hear them say anything, or, or will we ever know they have that information? I'm not going to bet a lot of money on it. So right now it's just theories, and, I'll, and there's a lot of them, and I'll spin them all into the book, and, including the Striker Avenue one. <laughs> Bingo, Ringo. Wrap it up. Wow. Well, I, can you have a nice day? Where is that happy end?
We spent over two years producing this podcast. The mystery of Molly quietly passed 60 years as we did. Life continued, began, and ended. In that time, my wife, Lauren, gave birth to our son, Christian. Lonnie laid his mother, Helen, to rest. We often put Molly down to live our lives, but we were easily drawn back to her. The adventure of the search would always be there waiting for us. There is a strange energy and truth to the pursuit of what really happened to Molly Zelko, far beyond wanting justice and closure for her. I suspect there may be a repressed desire in us to never want to find out what really happened to her. It's tempting to believe that truth will one day be revealed completely to us. John Whiteside believed this and was hopeful that in death, the truth about Molly would be revealed. He may have even been more eager to learn that than the lesser cosmic things, like the meaning of life or the origin of the universe. John may not have known what happened to Molly in this life, but I have to believe he took comfort in knowing that we would keep looking. In whatever manner we choose to search for our own truths, for each of us, the day will come when every search comes to an end. But I, too, believe that people will always keep looking, and as long as they do, we will all be better for it. I'm Greg Pierbolt. This has been The Spectator. Wherever you are, Molly, we'll keep searching. Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Craig Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of the Joliet Public Library's digital media studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, Dennis Enrietta, Arlene Rivers, and Jim Zelko. Special thanks to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library. <laughs>